I'm pleased to welcome you to this podcast with me, Jill Rowe, talking with Steve Chalk. We discuss the way of the rabbi and the power of dust, how discomfort is integral to our growth and getting to the place of knowing we are part of something bigger than just us, our lives becoming a line in an unfolding story. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as Steve and I did. Hello again, Steve. A few uh, years ago, a friend uh, and I were sat in a cathedral. It was in Spain, and we were sat in a side chapel. So there's loads of tourists around. But a few of us had sat down in this side chapel. And when you looked up at the the wall, uh, all four walls, there were these sculptures of all of the saints and a whole host of other people who I have no idea who all of them were. The apostles. The oh, disciples, the whole shebang, the whole, yeah, I'm sure. All of them yeah. lined up. Everyone was no there. No women, no doubt. No, there were. Oh, there was there women were women, well. yeah. And uh, it was a really sobering moment because you sat there and you suddenly realise this isn't just me. This isn't... I'm part of a story, a history that goes way back many years, many experiences. And this is just the moment that I'm now in not that I'd ever be turned into a sculpture on a wall but for me it was very much that this isn't just about my life now this is that I belong to something that has gone on for a very long time and I realized how important that was a long conversation Yeah, yeah yeah and that all of those people had contributed something. Yeah, it's a bit yeah. Dead Poets Society moment, isn't it? Yeah. Contributed a verse that all of everyone had played a part in that. Mm. I feel like that all of the time. I'm. I think I'm very aware of that. Uh, perhaps I'm aware of it because I'm older. I'm but... not passing any comment on your age, <laughs> Steve. But I no. I think actually, well, to tell you the truth, since when I was really quite young, I, this has been kind of thrust on me that you're part of this ongoing thing. I'll tell you why. Because I began Oasis in my late 20s. And by the time I was in my late 30s, it had grown. And there were lots and lots and lots of people involved. Not as it is now, but it had grown. But I remember distinctly before my 40th birthday, so there was only kind of 10 years on, people beginning to say, so, um, well, all of this is fine, but what's going to happen when you die? I'm <laughs> yeah, sure you've yeah, heard people yeah, say yeah, that yeah. to me. Yeah. I get asked that almost yeah. every day. Yeah. I was asked it yesterday, <laughs> the day before. And she said, honestly, and they used to say, you know, well, it will all fall apart. You know, what, what, what are you going to do with it after you die? Who's going to lead it then? And, and now looking back on it, I suppose when I was in my late 30s, you kind of feel old. But now looking back on it, I was, I was almost a teenager. You're only 12? Yeah. And they were already asking me about what I was going to do with it all, how I was going to protect it all beyond my death. And um, then I got a friend who sent me some papers from Harvard Business School on succession planning. And he said, you've got to read all these. You've got to deal with it. So I did read them all. And... Um, and try to deal with it. But it's gone on for, for yeah. constantly since then. If you were to die tonight, what what would become of Oasis? Who would lead it? What would happen to it? And I suppose what that does is in a much kind of more previous sense than it should really be, is you do think about your own demise. You know, yeah. there I am in my 30s thinking my life's almost <laughs> over because so I get a handover. And, but it, I think that makes you acutely aware that actually we're all passing 
Do you yeah. know, we, we are all playing our part, as I read somewhere recently. In the end, we're all turned into a line in a story. That's yeah. it. Our Absolutely. life becomes a line in a story. So what am I learning? Who am I building on? Who came before me? Who do I owe all of this to? The stuff that I take for granted is only, can only be taken for granted because someone laid down that track, had yeah. those thoughts, um, thought dynamically, thought creatively, thought out the envelope. Yeah. So because they made that ground, we just build on it. So it's that phrase, isn't it? Standing on the shoulders of yeah. giants. Yeah, then we pass it on. Absolutely. So for you, mm. who are the giants mm. that you, you know, Steve Chalk, mm. to many of us, you're, you're a giant who... Mm. Not that you are a giant, no, but no, you are you are a giant that for many people man. they're like, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're they're standing on your shoulders now. That's, but for you, what about you? Mm. Well, I think that you know, going back to what we said in our last podcast, if you oh, I remember it well. <laughs> but I talked about those guys at the youth club I used to go to. And I said one was called Ken. Ken Humphreys was his name. Another one, Steve. Steve Flashman. I remember them, do you know? And no one else would connect me with them. But I know that when I was 14, 15, they invested heavily in my life. Steve Flashman taught me to play the guitar, taught me to play the bass guitar, taught me note by note. And then they gave me the chance to join in a band. And I, by the time I was 15, 16, I was... I was singing and playing and performing on stage and, you know, and then by the time I was 17, 18, performing in pubs and things like that. Did you get a record contract? I was offered several record contracts, three, I think, I seem to remember. Then I went solo, you see. (laughs) By the time I was in my (laughs) 20s, I went solo. And actually the first thing about Oasis was just me doing concerts. In fact, I used to call them a show called the Video Express. And because I was playing to these huge crowds of teenagers around the country, I was offered recording contract after recording contract, which I never took up because I just (laughs) used to say to me, it's ridiculous. I am not. I I realised people wanted a recording contract with me because I could deliver them an audience and sales. But my music was not (laughs) worth listening to out of the, you know, the event was exciting, yeah. hopefully, but you would never want to go <laughs> away for a more reflective moment and re-listen. And trust me, <laughs> you got to know your own weaknesses, yeah. don't you? So anyway, these guys, you see, Steve they taught Ken. me these things. Steve and Ken, um, they taught me, they taught me to play instruments, they gave me opportunities to stand on stages, they gave me opportunities to speak. So... I build on, you know, I build on mm. those things all of the time. I inherited so much from them um, and then from others. I've got a, f- um, a friend called uh, Tony in the States, Tony Campolo, who I got to know when I was 30, probably, uh, when I just began Oasis. And he was the best sp- communicator I'd ever met in my life, one-to-one, uh, mm. uh, you know, off a stage. He mm. could communicate to a person, an individual or a hall with 10,000 people in. And um, I got to go and speak at a conference in Africa with him. And I learned so much about the dynamics of communicating to a large audience. So you're constantly building Mm. Mm. um, on people's thinking and understanding, in my case, on their theology, their communication skills. 
Then I set up Oasis and I used to look at other organisations. There was an organisation called Saltmine and I thought if only Oasis could be as big as Saltmine and have that kind of, well, what I'd now call infrastructure, but I didn't even know the word then, you know, <laughs> that organisation. Yeah. And then you, you grow and you outgrow something and then you go on to mm. something else. So you spend all your life growing, as you say, standing yeah. on the shoulders of giants. But then you have to realise that you've got to become the shoulders that someone else is going yeah. to stand on. Yeah. I, I have this funny thing, actually. I'm oh, sorry, talking too much, but I have this funny thing. I still pray this prayer, really. And I, Lord, I know that I've got to, I know that I want to, not just got to. You're just passing on the ball, aren't you? You're yeah. wearing the, the yeah. shirt for a while and passing on the shirt. But um, I, I kind of often say, Lord, help me get as far as I possibly can because I know if I get as far as I possibly can, then those who stand on my shoulders will get further than they would have got. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you yeah. can't slack, live intentionally, <laughs> strain it as much as you can because then the next generation will get a whole lot further than they would have otherwise got. Yeah. I've got so much I could ask about that, but I'm not going to. We can save that for another time. And so there's a thing in there, isn't there, about that the people that we look up to are like teachers to us. Mm. People whose shoulders we stand in on are teachers to us. Some of those people we get to meet mm. and some of them we never meet but we yeah. admire yeah. from a distance. And some of them you. we never even know. Yeah, exactly, like, you know, in the, in the chapel and what have you that I sat in. But we, you and I talk a lot, don't we, about in our work in the uh, Oasis family, we talk a lot about this idea of being rabbis not just us, but mm. we talk about what that means. Mm. Do you want to tell us a bit yeah, about... Yeah, well, yeah, so I've, you know, over the years, of course, I've, I've um, thought about this a lot. There was this thing called the Mishnah. Well, there is a thing called the Mishnah. And uh, the rabbis, Jewish teachers, that contributed to the Mishnah. In fact, you can look at the Mishnah online now, find it online, the Mishnah, and then something called the Talmud, which is the Mishnah plus a hot, plus, plus, plus the souped-up Mishnah. <laughs> and uh, the Mishnah is just a collection of the sayings and teachings of the rabbis dating back to before Jesus lived. It wasn't put into writing until after Jesus had lived, sometime in the second century. But it was only put into writing then because people feared because of the terrible things that were happening to the Jewish people, they really ought to now write it down. But the rabbis always had this view that it was better to pass things on life to life, relationship to relationship, than scribble it down. That's something we've never really been able mm. to understand because we always say, well, if you write it down, it'd be much better than passing it on. We can never understand that until the invention of email. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. suddenly everyone yeah. realised yeah. it's much better to phone someone and yeah. talk to them than send an email, which will always be misinterpreted, Absolutely. misunderstood, taken out of context. So life to life is better. But eventually all this was written down in, in what's called the Mishnah, the teaching of the rabbis. And you can see how one generation of rabbis passed their wisdom, their depth, their understanding onto the next, who built on it and added to it, but not just added to it, debated it, you know, disagreed with it, said, I like this, but not like that. I see it like this and like that. So I think the first thing to say is that moving forward, we need to honour the past mm. constantly. I often say this to staff in Oasis now, because there are thousands of staff in Oasis now, but the truth is 
they've inherited what people they never knew built. Mm. The first ever volunteer in Oasis was a lady called Ruth Clinch. She was retired and she came to work with me in the 80s. And Ruth laid down the path that endless other people have trodden. They None of them know her, but they are all dependent on what she did because Oasis was just me and she allowed me to get out and do things while she did some administration and putting things together. I can still remember the first day I met her. She had a corduroy green suit. <laughs> See, how she was random. in her 60s and she I know she got it from Next. There's a in the UK Steve, there's a store you are... called Next and I know that that corduroy green suit <laughs> came from Next and she was in her 60s and she turned turned up and uh, <laughs> and she worked with me for the next 7 years for nothing. Can I just say that that is the most random memory, given that in the last podcast you just said, said I haven't got that a memory, you've got yeah. a rubbish I memory. I know, do you know how I remember that? Because my wife, Cornelia, likes clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent many hours standing in Next, and it just so happens that when she came through the you door that day, it. I thought... That's from Next. That's from Next. <laughs> anyway, so... Everyone in Oasis, all the kids in our schools, all the teaching staff we got, everything, one that works for Oasis around the world is literally mm. building on what Ruth Clinch delivered. Absolutely. It's an amazing thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and as we've gone on and we got, we've got more sophisticated about things and our current staff will critique the old ways and what happened and that's all great. But we're all critiquing each other, and that's part of the mm. conversation. Well, in the Mishnah, you see all that being played mm. out. But one of the teachings of the Mishnah is it's a fantastic thing. Uh, it's a piece of teaching to a disciple of a rabbi, a follower of a rabbi, a student apprentice. of a rabbi, an apprentice. Yeah. And it, uh, it simply says this. It says, in the evening, at sunset, be dusty with the dust of your rabbi's feet. In the evening at sunset, be dusty with the dust of your rabbi's feet. And the reason it says that is, of course, before there were tarmac roads, you walked with a rabbi. A rabbi taught on the move, not sitting Mm. in the classroom in Mm. rows. It was um, multi-dimensional learning. It was was multi-century learning. So you'd be walking and you'd go places and things would be pointed out to you and you'd watch your rabbi and you'd see their responses and to the questions they were asked and the situations that arose. You'd learn from the whole experience of life. But the other thing was, in life, you walked behind your rabbi, not in front of them because Mm. out of respect, you know, in that culture. So the saying was, be dusty with the dust of your rabbi's feet. In other words, before macadamized roads you'd flick up the dust. And if you were close to your rabbi, you'd get dusty. His dust would end up all over you. Um, But if you were too far away, you'd be clean at the end of the day. So the saying is, be dusty with the dust of your rabbi's feet. It's a way of measuring whether you're close enough to your rabbi to keep learning. Um, And then, of course, the apprentices of a rabbi became rabbis themselves and somebody else... Um, lived their life in, in in their shadow and got dusty with their dust. Yeah. And so knowledge was passed on from generation to generation. But the Mishnah records how the rabbis debated with one another, always respecting the um, generation that was passed, but having the confidence to do their own thinking and build on it at the same time. Because that's a really interesting thing, isn't it? That, it, that whole thing about questioning. Mm. 
so central to that whole culture, the whole, even if you, you know, even if you look at the, the life of Jesus in the Gospels, it's mm. Jesus was always doing the questioning thing. It was always, that was his method mm. of getting people to think. And so it's really interesting to me that we often find ourselves now, today, you can be in, in some systems, in organisations, maybe in uh, religious traditions, mm. where the whole idea of it being a conversation is shut down. Shut down altogether. And it's, yeah, so you cannot ask a question, mm. or if you have a question, then you can't bring that question into a space where mm-hmm. it can be thought about and reflected. Mm. And there's like that fear that people live with of if I if I open this up, if I if I step into that question and I I I can't see an end, I can't see where that question is going to take me. So they're either shut down by the system or their own fear stops them pursuing yeah, yeah. It's one of the distinct differences between Judaism and Christianity, actually, mm. because Judaism still retains that questioning, debating approach uh, to life. Mm. Everything is to be questioned, to be thought about. Um, but Christianity, for all sorts of cultural reasons, especially in the West, yeah. developed this uh, learning by rote. You know, someone stands at the front and they tell you the way it is and you scribble down notes or you memorise it and that's the truth. And, of course, that was re-emphasised when our churches developed pulpits. Mm. So, you know, the teacher stands literally six feet above contradiction a lot of the time. And then the worst thing becomes to ask a question. Yeah. Um, And I think that's led to a huge number of people leaving organised religion. Um, yeah. Because they'd rather live with questions. They need to be able to ask the questions. In the end, they'd rather live with a question they can't even answer than a question they're not allowed to ask. Yeah, absolutely. So how how do we create cultures, places, spaces, where we make sure it's okay mm. to ask questions? Mm. Where we, Because we know the impact on people's own lives where... You know, their marriage is falling apart, Mm. you know, Mm. but they're not allowed to ask, you know, actually you're in an abusive relationship or all of these things that actually end in people being in a situation of harm or uh, if you're gay or what, you know. So uh, uh, um, what you're saying there reminds me of a story. This happened years and years and years ago. It was when I was first. It was before Oasis began. And I was working as a youth worker in a church. And uh, I'd done theology. And a woman who I'd got to know came to see me. Now, I was in my second half of my 20s, and she looked pretty old, but I now realise was probably 40. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Because that's that's just how it is, isn't it? So this... Elderly lady, 40, (laughs) (laughs) comes and sits down with me. And I knew her. She was in the church. And she said, and I don't know why she chose me. She said, "Um, can I tell you something? I never told anyone this. And I can't tell anyone else. But you're on the staff. I was a minister, you know. She said, so I think I can tell you. and, And you might just understand. So I said, well, what is it? She said, well, 
every day I pray that my husband will commit adultery. Is that okay? What a question is that? <laughs> and I, I, I just said, I said, every day. She said, every day I pray for all I'm worth that my husband will commit adultery, have an affair. That's a big thing to say And she to said, is that okay? So avoiding answering the question, I said, well, why do you pray that prayer every day? And this is what she said. I've never forgotten it, clearly, because I'm telling mm. the story now. She said, well, Jesus said that the only reason for divorce, allowable reason, was adultery. My husband abuses me. It's horrible. I've lived with him for a decade. And every time I ask people round here, this church, whether I can get divorced, they say the only grounds for divorce <laughs> and remarriage is adultery. So I pray every day that he'll commit adultery. Wow. Then I'll be able to get divorced. And I tell you that story because that arises out of an abusive situation. Mm. This woman's in two abusive relationships, yeah. actually. She's in an abusive relationship with this husband who's beating her black and blue. But she's in an abusive relationship with the church yeah. that doesn't allow her to ask her questions and have an open conversation mm. around it. And I think lots of the time people get trapped in a form of religion or in a form of life yeah, anywhere. Absolutely. Where an office context where you can't ask the question. Mm. And whenever you can't ask the question, you're in a deeply abusive relationship. And if it's religious, a cult. Yeah. Mm. And, and the not allowing a question is, it is about power, isn't mm. it? It is an abuse of power and yeah. it's about your own taking back some of that power mm. to say, I'm going to, this is actually about me. This is about who I am, who I am becoming. Mm. So we, uh, so our task, I always think, um, you know, my task inside Oasis, I'm not saying I'm any good at it, but an inside um, the church that's part of Oasis that I lead um, in Waterloo I hope I say often when I'm speaking and leading, this is my view, it's the way I see it, you know, these are my thoughts. I hope I say sometimes, I'm not saying it's right, this is how I think, I'd like you to think about it. I know I say sometimes, a good talk or a good sermon, If <laughs> some people say there's no such thing as a good sermon <laughs> at all, but a good sermon shouldn't be one that everyone get, runs out the door going, well, I agree with every word, but one that makes people think enough to start debating and mm. and reach their own conclusions. Mm. If we live in communities that can't debate, they will always be immature. Yeah. Only communities that can question and disagree in an open and constructive and gracious way, rather than writing one another off, mm. will be a mature community. So some of those black and white communities where they know absolutely what's in, what's out, what's right, what's not, what's allowable, what's not. They pride themselves on their depth of understanding, but by very definition, they are shallow. Yeah. So how, um, if we Google your name, it's always a fun activity, not yeah, any a, name, but I've Googled shocking. mine twice, I think. Um, but if we Google your name, Steve, we will see quite quickly... <laughs> Probably the first thing that comes yeah. up, we will see 
you are known as someone who asks questions mm. about the, mm. the way things have always been. Well, uh, uh, heretic, I think, yeah. might even appear. Well, a funny, a funny thing happened to me uh, last week, actually, uh, which happens from time to time, but it, it happened last week. I went off to uh, have a, a meeting um, with uh, a bank, not for Oasis, mm. um, because one of the things we like to do is create banking um, everywhere we work because so many families who are, uh, are left behind financially uh, end up in debt and then we work with them to get them out of debt but they can't get good banking mm. and credit. So I was in a conversation with um, a bank about whether we might, technical phrase, white label a product that they've got and create yeah. Oasis banks an ongoing conversation but anyway we got to this point in the conversation which is going really well very well with the top pods at their head office um they said i knew this come because it always comes they said but you're religious aren't you oasis is religious and that's going to be a problem and and i've learned to say and i so they're all sat there with their devices in front of them i said well i wouldn't exactly say i'm religious to tell you the truth but i said I am a reverend and I do lead a church, but I said, here's the thing, why, why didn't you just Google my name? Because they're all sat there with their iPads and things, you know. So they Googled my name and, and then I said, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> I said, all the people that you think I represent, those who um, are cult, you know, run a cult basically, because a cult excludes people who are different, it's one of the things about a cult, isn't it? All the people who exclude people because of their gender or their sexuality or the, their stance on this or that or whatever, um, all those people who you think I am, the judgmental, excluding, homophobic, et cetera, et cetera, person, look, they're the people who hate me. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, all these people are always writing me off as, you know, as being the Antichrist, or, or I mean, literally, as you know, mm. they do. So it's a fantastic thing. It's a fantastic mechanism, you know. Thank goodness they do it. Because what happened was these executives sat around the room, and sure enough, I could see them scrolling <laughs> through all this stuff, and they realised that I can't be the person they think I am because the person, the kind of people they think I am, hates me and hates mm. us. Mm. And, and so... It's wonderful because it opened up the ongoing discussion. So we're in an ongoing discussion on the way, hopefully, to starting Oasis Banks. Mm. Simply because those people speak with venom the whole time. Instead of having a theology or even a philosophy of life that invites conversation and invites difference. Mm. So for, I guess in, in the kind of realm... So I, I obviously work in some of the things that you do, but in the kind of everyday conversations that I'm in, I notice as well that it doesn't just impact kind of those societal justice inclusion issues. This reluctance to engage in a question also holds people back in their own personal transformation mm. as well. Mm. So we are afraid of the question. If I've acted in a particular way... Mm. I'm scared to hear someone say, mm. Jill, do you think that was the most forgiving mm. thing? That mm. you, there's a, mm. as we feel that tension, because it disrupts us. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's knocking us from 
that what we th- what we think we are, yeah, and helping us see more clearly who perhaps mm. we truly are. Mm. So it's interesting as well that there's kind of a human mm. psyche thing about mm. self protection, and I guess yeah. that's what's happening when yeah. people are they're reacting to say to yeah. something you're saying is because it's safe. They're, they're mm. holding their truth mm. because they've built yeah. their whole identity and yeah. yeah. And yeah. at some point you were probably yeah. in that place as well. So yeah, yeah. so how do we get to the what what are the little things that we start to allow to happen in because I can think about it from a personal development like and I can talk mm. about that in a minute, but from a like mm. that that bigger thinking work that you do how do you not be afraid of going down the rabbit hole well everybody's afraid Mm. jesus once said the truth will set you free what he didn't say uh, was but it will hurt along the way (laughs) (laughs) it does the truth does set you free but it does hurt and yeah i think you're quite right so we don't want to confront it. I feel it myself all the time. You know, um, people will throw a new thought into a room um, where I've got a set pattern or way of mm. working or we've got a set pattern or way of working, and it's a disruption, isn't it? Mm. It's, a, it's a piece of cultural vandalism. Yeah. Actually, they are hurling this thing yeah. in and they're vandalising our process and our mm. structure and the, the way we do stuff around here. And I can feel in myself sometimes yeah. a kind of... Oh, yeah it's all it's awkward but then at other times i'm at well that's great mm. and it's it's trying to it's trying to encourage that mm. or e- and learning to work with a thing yeah. even when your first thought is to run away from it and to hide from it Absolutely. you've got to keep i'm saying this to myself so no, it's not you it, i'm literally saying you know you, I, steve you have to keep growing you have to keep Mm. learning you have to keep pushing yourself because we know that's true don't we actually if we think about it that it's only that it's only with disruption Mm. whether it's on a personal development Mm. path or in a relationship or Mm. at a a macro societal level Mm. it's only when disruption comes that the space opens up for learning and change to happen. If we never allow that in, it's never going to shift. No. Ever. No. So to be able to say and to acknowledge, this makes me feel uncomfortable, Mm. but I'm still going to lean into the question, whether it's about inclusion, whether Mm. it's about who I am as a human being, whatever it is, I'm still going to go there, even though... It makes me, and I know it makes me feel like this because I can actually feel it inside. Mm. I think that's the courageous piece. Yeah. To not turn back when you when you get that yeah. disruptive moment. It's yeah. not turn back on it. Yeah. But to just go, I'm going to lean in. Yeah, lean into it. Ask the question that hurts. Ask the question that challenges all mm. your presuppositions, etc., cetera, mm. etc. Cetera. Explore uh, a re- uh, um, relationships that you've not had before mm. with the kind of people who are other to you. I remember someone saying uh, to me, because, you know, I'm half Indian, half English, Mm. as as I was saying, so you you kind of think that, well, do you know, racism isn't my thing because I am mixed race anyway. Um, uh, 
But I remember someone some years ago, they saying, uh, they, they would talk, talking, I was just part of the, the, the room, they were saying, you know, some of you here uh, would consider yourselves as not racist. And they, they were, then they said this, have you ever had dinner with a black person? Have you ever invited a black person, a black family, round to your home? And I thought, oh, no, I haven't. And then you say, well, that's because I don't know any black families that well. And then you say, well, why don't I know any black yeah. families that well? Probably because I've never invited anyone round to my home. And, and then I found myself making a hundred excuses. Well, you know, it's no, no one's got tonight. And naturally, I haven't got any friends So you're like pushing that. the yeah. disruption yeah. away rather than... Rather than saying, actually... Yeah. Why is that? Why yeah. has everybody who's ever been to have dinner with Corny and I white? Yeah. Or approaching <laughs> my colour. <laughs> you know. Well, that's only because they're my relatives. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so then, you, so, so then it's not contemplating a new thought. It's actually doing a new thing. Mm. And yeah. it makes life a lot more joyous. Well, yeah, because it's richer. Isn't it? You you discover you well, discover I, more about you. I, you discover more about other people. You discover how you are yeah. with. I see. I see it happening in London, yeah. um, where 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 I live all the time. You'll see there'd be a, a gang of black teenagers, and a white guy wandering down the street, and you see them cross the mm. road. Now they cross the road, of course, out of fear, mm. as you say. It's not because they they don't want to walk past the black person, it's because they, they see a bunch of teenagers, you know, big hmm. teenagers, and they're scared stiff. Yeah. So they cross the road. Different to them. Yeah. So, but in actual fact, of course, if you walk up to a bunch of teenagers, black, white, or anything else, stood on the street and go, as you go past, go, hi, how you doing? Morning, afternoon. The, the truth is they will always greet you. Absolutely. And I often find, you know, I'll stop and have a conversation with, with people who I don't know until I said, until I didn't cross the mm. street, until I said, hi. But you're always struggling to overcome your fear for whatever yeah. reason. You know, they're young, I'm, I'm different to them, that, you know, they probably look down on me or whatever it is. But it's that fear that holds Absolutely. us back the whole time. Yeah, you've just got to just move away from that. Towards the bigger, mm. the more the it's better than that. I w that's so like, there you are. Invite someone round for dinner of a different ethnicity to you. Yeah, S don't it's cross an expansive the street. Experience. Yeah, look at the person you're dead scared <laughs> of and embrace them. I remember years ago I was speaking at this event. I remember it was in Newcastle, and it was a huge event, and um, a whole load of bikers arrived. You know. On their bikes, leather jackets, and, and it was a big event. But um, and and they looked scary. I mean, you know, the proper hell's angel yeah, yeah, yeah. types. And um, there was a break in this event, and there were hundreds of people at that. And I saw them standing around at the door, and I decided to go up to talk to these <laughs> hell's angels, and because they looked aggressive, and I'd I'd been speaking, and they looked aggressive while I was speaking, <laughs> you know, they looked like we're not enjoying any of this, you know, yeah. and I didn't know why they were there really. So I deliberately went up to them and I said, hi, <laughs> and the leader was massive. He said, 
oh, hello. <laughs> and he had this. <laughs> and he, instead of having a gruff voice, it was, oh, hello, a little squeaky voice. Oh, God. And then he said, I heard you speaking of something else in this high-pitched voice. I heard you speaking of something else the other year. So I asked all my mates to come along and look. They've come on. Would you like to see my motorbike? And you realise how stupid you Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Because you've fallen for this caricature thing, Absolutely. which alienates us from others and from learning. Yeah. I learned a lot about Harley Davidson's that <laughs> Classic moment. <laughs> so the, the rabbi thing, just to go back to that, we have to understand, don't we, that the, we're not, like, like you said, we're not only learning from the dust that, mm. of others, actually, mm. but these things where we choose to, we choose to lean into the discomfort, where mm. we choose to embrace a stranger, where we choose to do those things that yeah. feel we like that. ask the question. Yeah, that, that feels like it might compromise yeah. us. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say, Jill, about it is that, you know, there's a stage in life, isn't there, where you're used to your black and white answers on everything. Mm. You just know what you think about everything. You know what's right, you know what's wrong. Teenagers. You know, it's in, you know, yeah, it's an immature stage mm. of life. Then you grow into the place where you say, I want to ask some questions. And then you look for bigger answers mm. or you book to ask questions. But the problem with that stage in life is you can then end up looking down on the people that are still, yeah. you know, I used to fit, thing like that, but <laughs> I've moved on. But the, the reality is in life, I think, we're always at lots of different stages yeah. in different ways, aren't yeah. we? So there are still things in our lives that are black and white and there are things that we're questioning about. Yeah. And I think the point is to reach, to work towards that place where in actual fact you think, well, this is the way I understand things now. Yeah. And I'm not going to look down on the person who hasn't quite got to where I think I've got to. And the other thing you can do is you look down on the person who's got further than you. Because you say, you know, he's too black and white and she's too liberal. Hmm. I'm in exactly the right place in life. Whereas the whole of life is a growing hmm. um, cycle, isn't it? Yeah. And it's saying, this is where I am. Everybody's on this pathway. Yeah. I'm going to embrace everyone with their generosity. Yeah, and I think embracing with the generosity is really... So I, just from the other podcast, we talked about the fact that the defining moment for me, very very much a defining moment for me, was when my mum died. But I remember in the journey of her dying, uh, somebody in the church that I was going to way back then came up to me, and <laughs> this is horrific, came up to me and just said... I know your mum's dying, but the reason your mum's dying is because she's got unforgiveness in her, in her life. Mm. I mean, can you, like, mm. I was, mm. you know, honestly, wanted to punch mm. her in the head. Mm. <laughs> but, the, but thankfully, <laughs> I didn't. Mm. I chose to just say, I don't believe that that's how this mm. works, and walked away. Mm. But I think in those moments, in the big moments, that it's okay to hold those questions. Even I knew that what she was saying for me, there's no way that that's, the, that's true. There's no way. But I knew I needed to just walk out what the next phase of my understanding of what that meant for everything I'd always been told about who God was and how life worked and 
But it's just, it's really interesting that when you actually get those questions, you've always got two ways of responding, haven't you? It's always not with grace or with grace that's not just for the person who's maybe offended you, but Mm. grace for how you're going to journey with that Mm. through the next however many months or whatever to work it out. Mm. So, yeah. Well, that's probably a good place to leave this isn't it because it's a case of climbing on the shoulders of others moving on but recognizing that other people are on a journey too Mm. and so the immature statement they make the unkind or lacking in generosity statement they make is a product of what they've been taught absolutely (laughs) Um, and they're just repeating it back so through our attitudes even to them, somebody's like that, the thing that was said to you about your mother is, mm. is awful, isn't it? Mm. But I guess even in your response, you stop someone in their tracks, don't you? And yeah. you make them think again. Mm. So that we not only are climbing on the shoulders of giants and moving on in our lives, but through our responses, which aren't judgmental, helping other people to journey, mm. never thinking we're above or beyond. No. But we're journeying together. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jill. There we go.